today is Resurrection Sunday, and it's also April Fool's Day, which is a little ironic and maybe a little unfortunate. Uh, I don't doubt that some of you have already been very active today in your families, and or you at least have plans this afternoon. So be warned, be on the lookout, and play nice uh, with one another. But in addition to the little pranks that often play within families on April Fool's Day, there it's become uh, a, an opportunity for major corporations and companies to prank their consumers through their websites and social media accounts. And so I'm sure you've seen these in past years. I have not been, I have not checked this morning to see which kind of pranks have been played by companies today. And it's just all in good humor. But some of the more creative ones that I can, I, I was thinking back on. Quilted Northern uh, had this announcement on April 1st a couple years ago. They announced their new line of rustic toilet paper for those who lead an organic lifestyle. And this is a quote from their website. Our new rustic weave brand is an artisan-crafted toilet paper that is hand-pulped and hand-perforated. The product comes in several varieties, including cedar loom and extra virgin birch. Um, National Geographic announced, um, uh, maybe last year I think it was, they would no longer publish nude animal photographs. <laughs> Quote, from now on, <laughs> all animals must be fully clothed in order to appear in our publications. So they had animals with, you know, like people dress up dogs. Um, Starbucks, this is several years ago, but I still think the picture, if you've seen it, is hilarious. Announced on its blog several years ago that they were introducing two new sizes to their strange sizing system that they already have. But the Plenta, which was 128 ounces, a full gallon, so it's this massive cup. And then the Micro, which is a tiny two ounces. Um, the, the goal of these companies is to, is to get naive web users to believe something ridiculous, or at least to have a good laugh. But, but certainly they're trying to catch people. To make, to make a fabrication sound like the truth, to make the absurd seem reasonable. And so they feed on the the gullibility of the masses, of us, hoping that some will take the bait, and many, many do. Um, but those, those April Fool's pranks are kind of clever, and, and, and they're, they're funny and tame enough. Not, no big deal. But there, there are many who think that we are the ones being duped today. They think it's ridiculous and even um, kind of funny that we would be meeting and gathering together here, singing songs like we've been singing, and hearing a message about a 2,000-year-old hoax. Christians are viewed by many as kind of naive simpletons who've staked their lives on a fabricated myth, the myth of the empty tomb. And if Jesus is, in fact, dead, if the tomb still has the bones of our Lord then they are absolutely right. If Jesus didn't literally, uh, literally raise from the dead 2,000 years ago, then Christianity is a mockery. It is the rightful butt of every religious joke. Because we built our hope, we've staked our lives on a lie. Paul, one of the New Testament writers said it this way, if, if the resurrection is not true and if we have hoped in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. That's in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. So if Jesus' tomb is not empty, if there's no hope of a future resurrection for us, then, and if the resurrection is not true, then we're gullible and we're pitiable people. 
We'd be much better off instead of gathering here at 9.30 a.m. to make a 9.30 a.m. tea time at the golf course. Or this is a beautiful day like today. Go for a hike. Do something else. Why are we here if this is not true? But as Paul says in the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel. He says earlier in that in that. Uh, in that chapter of that letter, this is the gospel. This is the true good news. What? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to many witnesses. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it's not a man-made myth. It's not a fabrication to kind of prop up some dying religion. But listen, it is true that our faith rises or falls on the validity of the empty tomb. uh, Daryl Bach, a theologian, he said, Without the resurrection, Christianity is just another human approach to reach God. It is emptied of transforming power and hope. It is a mere shell, not worth the energy one devotes to it. So there there is no Christianity without the resurrection. Because Christianity would have no Christ, no Messiah, if the, if the tomb is still occupied. Everything hinges on the resurrection. History hinges on this event. And listen, your life hinges on the truthfulness of this event. I want us to see that today. Now, there are many proofs in Scripture and proofs that I could give you in general for believing the resurrection. Maybe you come and you are skeptical and you're not believing. That's okay. I'm not going to, again, not going to embarrass you. We're honored you're here and, and you're listening. And, and I pray that you would. And I'd love to speak with you more afterwards. But we could spend this whole sermon, we could spend weeks talking about some of those evidences of the truthfulness of the resurrection. There are Old Testament prophecies that spoke hundreds of years prior to this event. And, and they're fulfilled with perfect accuracy. There are, there are the predictions that Jesus made earlier in his life that came to pass. There are the hundreds of witnesses who, who, who witnessed, uh, who saw the, the Christ after he rose from the dead. There was the fact that Sabbath worship, Saturday worship, changed to Sunday worship. And because of the resurrection, that was monumental shift. There was, there was the fact that the stone was moved, this massive stone, and, and it was heavily guarded, and, 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 and so the body couldn't be stolen, and yet, and, and yet he, was, he was gone. It, there's the empty tomb, and the inability to produce a body. I mean, surely they could have pulled all the resources and found him if that was the case, if his body had been stolen. There were the doubting apostles. I mean, if, if the guys who wrote the New Testament were the ones who conspired to steal Jesus' body and to concoct this hoax, that's kind of ridiculous that they would lay down their lives and, and end up being martyred for a lie that they knew they had fabricated. It doesn't make sense. There's the harmony of all the written records that we have in the New Testament. The different authors writing alone from different places at different times, and yet they all harmonize perfectly. So there, there are all kinds of proofs. But listen, of all of the evidences that, that are offered to prove the historical reality of the empty tomb, there's none more frustrating and, to the world and powerful than what is happening right here today. It's you and me. It's, it's the church. That's the strongest evidence. 
How do you possibly explain the continuation of Jesus' little band of followers 2,000 years later without the empty tomb? Another, uh, this is a Cambridge University professor, he's now deceased, but he, he said this, If the coming into existence of the church, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, rips a great hole in history, a hole of the size and shape of the resurrection, What does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? The birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. So this is what I was going to we're going to walk along two lines of of thought this morning in the in the time we have remaining. First thing to say is this is that history does not make any sense without the empty tomb. It doesn't. And this is what he's saying. What, whatever took place in first century Palestine, whatever happened there, it changed the world forever. And so the, 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 those events, they blew a hole in history, as this professor is saying, the exact size and shape of the empty tomb. And we have to recognize that. And so you think about it. Jesus was the leader of this declining religious movement. Movement was made up of uninfluential, unimpressive nobodies. These were not movers and shakers and powerful people in their day. And before the movement ever really got off the ground, their leader, Jesus, was executed for treason. And and his followers then deserted the cause in droves just to save their own skins. They They did not stay. So Christianity as it were, it lay on the brink of total annihilation, of extinction. But in three short days, everything changed. (laughs) Something happened. Soon after Jesus' brutal, humiliating death on the cross and burial, those same terrified, scattered, disbanded nobodies, they start showing up everywhere. And then what are they doing? They're publicly and unashamedly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No longer hiding in fear. Now now they're willing to suffer, even to die for this message. They were fishermen and farmers who were cowering in fear. Now they're transformed into these articulate, courageous preachers of the resurrection. And And they have this unshakable confidence and joy. And then this movement, it just spilled out of the graveyard and into the world. And so you get in later into the book of Acts, and we're going to be there in Acts 5 in just a moment, so hold your spot. But, but the book of Acts is a story of the early church and how the gospel took root and spread after Christ was crucified and rose from the dead and how it, how it went out through the world. And so you get later into the book of Acts, in Acts seventeen six, those early Christians were accused of, uh, quote, turning the world upside down. So it was, this, it, was, it, was, it was from near annihilation to just spreading like wildfire in just a few short years. So what, what, what happened to those cowards that, that were huddled together in that upper room fearing for their lives and thinking it was all over and that they, they had lost everything? What, what transformed them? What's the answer? There's only one answer. He's risen. He is risen. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed them and it changed history. Those first Christians, they they weren't spending all their time and energy defending 
the resurrection. You know, they were, they were spending all their time and in, in, in energy believing it and proclaiming it and living in light of it. It wasn't, it wasn't the early Christians trying to explain the resurrection to the world. It was the world trying to explain them. And they couldn't without the empty tomb. Their encounter with the risen Lord completely transformed them. And, and because they were so radically changed, a hole was ripped into history, the exact size and shape of the empty tomb. History was forever changed. There's no other answer. So as you look through, if you, if you were to read through the book of Acts and, 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 and you would see this progression through the story, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it dominates the conversation and the preaching uh, throughout, this, throughout this book. And so you have the apostles who were the kind of the leaders in the early church and that were set apart by the Lord himself. And what is the bulk of their job description? We see it in chapter 1, verse 22. They are witnesses of the resurrection. That's what an apostle was. What was the summary of their ministry in, in Acts 4.33? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's what they did. And so they were soon arrested for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were yet miraculously freed by the Lord. And, and, and they were brought before this religious court. And they were threatened and told, you can't ever speak in the name of Jesus again. And so we pick it up in Acts chapter 5. And look down in verse 29. So after they've been warned and threatened, Peter, Peter speaks up. Remember, this is the same Peter who was a coward, who denied Jesus three times at his moment of greatest need. So this same Peter and the apostles, they answered this religious court. What do they say? Verse 29, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers, listen, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. Now this really steamed these Jewish authorities. They, they were, the, the text says, they were enraged at hearing this from Peter and the other apostles. I mean, they are in a tizzy. They are, they are just beside themselves that Peter would make this bold claim before this esteemed religious court. But one of, their, one of the top dogs in this Jewish court, Gamaliel, he was more cool-headed and he calmed everybody down. And so he, he kind of sends Peter and the apostles out in the hallway. As some of you have this experience in school as a child. You know, go out there, we'll figure out what to do with you. And uh, so he sends them out, and then he speaks to the rest of the court here. Verse 35, look down at verse 35. Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. So there's this, this cause, this revolution that was beginning. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, 
Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. So what's the common denominator between these other revolutionaries? They died and they stayed dead. And their little movements came to nothing. What's different about Jesus? He also died, but he rose again. And his movement proved unstoppable. And we are evidence of that even today. We could go on and on in the book of Acts and see the transforming power that the resurrection had on those early Christians and on the early church. And there's an article in the bulletin that you received and that you came in that, that shows some of those examples and gives us many examples. So I'm just going to let that stand for itself and you can read that later. But what I want you to see is that the empty tomb changed everything for the early church. History was changed. Those first, second, third century Christians focused almost exclusively on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But listen, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just important back then, when the the whole Christianity thing was getting off the ground. No, its reality continues to shape and transform us today. And that brings us to the second of two things I want to kind of streams of thought. So history doesn't make any sense without the empty tomb. Secondly, your life should not make any sense without the empty tomb. If you really believe and you really sink your teeth into the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're going to be weird. (laughs) Say you're going to be looked on with curiosity by the world around you because you're you're going to look different. You will be puzzling to your neighbors and to your coworkers and to your classmates and to your friends and family members. What, what, what is it? What is it that will make you stand out? Is it because you get on Facebook and you have these fanatical denunciations of Easter bunnies and peeps or, or you know, that that's what makes you really unique is because you're so against those things? No. It's not that you have resurrection eggs in your family and you would never ever 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 hunt easter eggs or color them or something like that that's not that's not the thing that should make us stand out but what should make us stand out is the fact that our whole aim and direction of life has been changed by the fact that jesus lives that's everything changes so we have this unshakable confidence in in, in the resurrected christ And our lives are different. The the hole in your life has been filled by something that is the exact size and shape of the empty tomb. And that should be the truth. So I ask you, what impression does your life make on the world around you? Is the only explanation for the way that you think and speak and act the fact that Christ is risen? Do you live like one who's encountered the risen Lord? We shouldn't be straining to so much to defend the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as much as the world should be straining to figure us out without it. Our lives should not make any sense unless the resurrection fills in the blank. This should have such a transforming difference on our lives.
So what, what are the characteristics of, of our lives that should confuse the world if we really believe that the tomb is empty? Let me give you s- several. First one is purpose. Purpose. That's a very common word. and We want to live purpose-filled lives and purposeful lives. That's, that's very common thought. But if you, if you really believe, if you really confess, if you really stake your life upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're going to be a person who lives with a clearer and greater sense of, of purpose than others around you. Your life will be stripped of things that hinder you or that distract you from following hard after the risen Christ. And so you're going you're gonna to be ready to jettison those things that drain your energy from, from being able to really engage in the advance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the, the resurrection-believing Christian is focused on these eternal realities and isn't consumed with or distracted by the momentary and fleeting pleasures of this world. So we're not, we're not, we're not going to be weighed down by all the clutter of this world. Because if the re- resurrection is true, then this life is not all that there is. And if you're, but if you're living only for this life, then that clearly you're not taking the resurrection seriously. Let me look in Philippians chapter 3, and you see this with the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3, in verse 7. He's a little personal testimony here that Paul's making. He says, But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, I threw off everything that stood in the way of attaining this purpose. I count it all as lost. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look in verse 10. That I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so the resurrection, you see in these words, it so transformed Peter's thinking, it redirected his life so that it's now aimed at eternity. When was the last time somebody accused you of having an extremely eternal focus in life? When was the last time somebody criticized you for not taking advantage of everything, every little temporal pleasure this world has to offer? If you truly believe the tomb is empty, if you think Jesus' death and resurrection really matters, then you're not going to just live like the world for the world. You're going to be living for the world to come. There's going to be a, a distinct purpose to your life. Second, impact. Peace. Peace. Not just in the kind of, hey, I'm peaceful, easy-feeling kind of way, and just an emotional feeling sense. But, but in the idea that you, of being right with God no matter what happens in your life. 
you can know that peace because of the resurrection. No matter what difficulties you face, there's always the truth that you can be at peace with God. And that peace has been established and confirmed by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Romans chapter 4, 22 and 25, through 25. Look there with me. And in, in, in this letter, Paul's writing to... to to, to this church, these believers in Rome, and he's, he's, he's laying out in very clear terms what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is. And he, he's referencing back to Abraham in the Old Testament. He's speaking of Abraham, and he said, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, Abraham's faith. But then he brings it and connects it to us, verse 23. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was, listen to this, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he died on the cross for our transgressions. He suffered the penalty for our sins. Yet the story doesn't end there. He was raised for our justification. The only way we know that Christ's atoning work on the cross was sufficient, was able to atone for our sins, is the fact that Christ came back from the tomb. And this is this has imagery that goes back to the Old Testament. We, if you were here with us Friday night, we read passages that that showed this. But it goes back to that imagery of the on the of the Day of Atonement. And so the priests on this one day of the year, he went into the Holy of Holies one time a year, offering sacrifice for the sins of the people that would cover their sins for the coming year. And what? How did the people know that it worked? How did they know that, that God was pleased with the sacrifice? It was the fact that the priest came out alive. That he lived through this. And so Paul is saying he was raised for our justification. He's saying he came out of the grave alive. And that proves the fact that God accepted the sacrifice, his sacrifice for our sins. So what is that, again, what, what, what are you saying? What does that do for us as believers? The fact that Christ was raised, showing our justification before God, it produces peace in our hearts. Because, because Christ is risen, I can have the peace of knowing my sins are forgiven. I can know that. I don't have to wonder if I've been good enough today. I wonder if I've, I've done enough. I wonder if I've gone to church enough times. And I, I, I wonder if I'm better than others. That's not it. It's my, what I look to is what God has done. That Christ was, was, uh, he was delivered for my trespasses and he was raised for my justification. So I have peace before God. I have confidence. I, and so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sin. But he goes on to declare, but he has been raised. And so there's, if, there, if there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness, there's no, no peace with God, no assurance of salvation, but Christ is risen. So we have this peace. That's, that's, there's all kinds of turmoil in our lives. And then Jesus says, in this world you're going to have tribulations. But take our, I've overcome the world. And, and, and brothers and sisters, we can live in this turmoil-filled world, but we can have the peace of knowing that we stand before God justified. Third, hope. Hope. How, is, how can our lives, what should make our lives stand out in this world because we so deeply believe in the resurrection of Christ? We should, we should, have, we should be marked by hope. 
because Christ didn't stay in the grave, when, when you look at the future, when you look at the headlines, and you check CNN, and you, and you look at, at the, the news, and you look at the economy, and you see wars, and you see terrorism, and you see shootings, and you see diseases, and you see pain, and you face death and mortality, all around us, we can have hope through the resurrection that nothing else can give to us. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the letter that we're walking through on Sunday mornings. And so let this be an encouragement to you to come back and join us next week. But again, Peter's writing this letter. The same Peter that was the coward, that was turned courageous after the resurrection of Christ. And this, this event of Jesus raising from the dead just radically reshaped and, and changed the direction of Peter's life. And so see how he writes to encourage other Christians who are suffering persecution and, and have been scattered and, and are facing all kinds of difficulties and sufferings. And so he writes to them in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a sickly hope, not a, not a wishful hope, but one that is alive and well in spite of suffering and hardship. A living hope. And how has He done that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to this inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. So what, what does that hope do for us in this world? How does it, how does it change us? Well, he goes on and later in that letter of 1 Peter. He, he writes in chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. People asking you, why are you so hopeful? Are you living and thinking and talking in such a way that people are just puzzled by your hope? The world should be asking the question, how, how do you live in this crazy, messed up world with hope, with such hope. Have you been accused recently of being a very hope-filled person? The more we really understand and embrace and believe and live in light of the empty tomb, we will manifest a strange and curious hope in a very hopeless world. Do, do, do people scratch their heads and wonder and kind of disbelief? What is it? What is it about you? Why... How, how can you face this painful trial that you're going through and sickness and cancer and, and death in your family and, and so many losses and all this pain? How can you face that with this deep, residing, authentic, unshakable, penetrating hope? When, when they do ask how we can face this with hope, we have an answer. And it's that Christ is risen. Jesus lives. Fourth, fourth mark that this should have on our life: conviction, conviction or truth. 
In Acts chapter 17, if, if you want to turn back to Acts, you look in chapter 17, Paul, Paul's up there on the top of this hill, which is a place where all the people love to go and debate the latest philosophies of the day, and all these Greek philosophers are there, and they're, they're, they're arguing with one another, and, and the, the greatest orders, orders of the day are there, and, and giving their speeches, and making their compelling arguments, and philosophy, and all these things, and religion, and so he's up there with a lot of really smart people, and and these renowned scholars from, from his day, and they, and they all denied the resurrection. They, none of them believed this. And so Paul's invited, though, to speak into that context. And so he speaks for quite a while. Then you pick it up in verse 30, and he turns a corner with them. And we don't have time to look at everything he says, but this is where he kind of turns and speaks directly to them. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, that was more than a little offensive to these, these uh, intellectuals. And he goes on, verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so the, the resurrection of Jesus, it puts an end to all philosophies and all religions that reject the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ. Christians should be bolstered by the fact that there is truth. And this is truth. This is truth. When a, when a man dies and is buried in a grave and then comes back to life three days later glorified, that man is now the sole authority on what is true. In all things, he knows the truth. He, as John 14, 6 says, he is the truth. We are people of the truth if we are people of the resurrection. Do you live like it? Or are you embarrassed by Jesus? Are you embarrassed by the resurrection? The fact that we know the truth, it shouldn't make us proud and arrogant. Like, hey, we know, we, we got our act together, you bunch of fools. That's not it, no but it should make us thankful. The Lord has opened our eyes to see this and it should make us compassionate and burdened to share the truth with others. Fifth, a couple more here. We should be marked by joy. Joy. I mean, if you, again, we don't have time to look at all these verses, but if you look in the book of Acts, if you've read through Acts before, these apostles and these early Christians, are, their lives are, are just dominated by the reality of the resurrection. And one of the things that stands out is they're just so stinking happy. <laughs> they're just so joyful. Not because God just kind of makes all of their circumstances easy and pleasant and light. No, not at all. They're, they're suffering, they're being beaten, they're being imprisoned, they're being tortured, they're having their, all their belongings taken away and seized by the government. They're being stoned, mocked, ridiculed, threatened, disowned by their families, and yet they're always rejoicing. And they're singing, smiling. Why? Because the fact that Jesus is alive was so fresh to them and so transforming of them. Are you joyful? Are you a joyful person? Is that a mark of your life? Is your happiness tied to your changing, always changing circumstances? So yeah, today I'm happy because everything went well. The kids had their shoes ready and, and we were out the door on time and everything was just great. But you know, then something, the, the dinner will be ruined or something like that and the joy is gone. 
Is it dependent upon circumstances or is your joy is your joy tied to the unchanging risen Christ? And this is what characterize should characterize us. Sixth, mission. Mission. These first century Christians, I mean I read I read those accounts and acts, it's like they're grabbing people by the shoulders and say, He's risen. Do you get it? You understand? He lives. They, 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 can't, they can't help it. This is what they're doing. They're going around saying that Christ died and He rose again. Telling everybody. When was the last time you were so gripped by the reality of the empty tomb that, that you were just compelled to tell people about Jesus? Are you embarrassed to speak of the risen Christ? Last, it's confidence. We should, we should exude a curious confidence that even stares death in the face and trust in God. We should, this sounds strange, we should die differently. If you're a Christian, you, you shouldn't be afraid of death. That makes, I know that makes us a little uneasy because we're, we're afraid of dying and the process of dying is ugly and, it, and how, we're, how we might die and what that will be like. But death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. But for the Christian, it is a defeated enemy. And so it's one we don't need to fear and to be gripped by fear of. I say this mindful of the fact that some of you, I know, are facing and concerned for that the imminent prospect of death for you or a close loved one. And I don't say this lightly, but I say this to encourage you. This is how the resurrection speaks into our lives. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. This is that, if you want to turn there with me, and this will be the last passage we look at. 1 Corinthians 15. This is that, that great chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ where Paul just lays it out so clearly. But toward the end, as he's connecting this and applying this to these believers and, and again, who are facing the prospect of death and, and their suffering and persecution is increasing. And so he says to them, down in verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will, we will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. I know that's language, maybe you're not familiar, there's imagery here, but he's just saying we're, 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 we're going to die, but we will, we will be raised. We will be raised to living again. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We're going to die, that's what he's saying. But look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, of all the things that are most curious to the world about Christians, I think that it's the fact that our confidence in the face of death is the most bizarre. And it's rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Death is a common enemy. Everyone is going to die. I hope that you're not hearing that for the first time from me. Some live in denial, but deep down we know it. Uh, we instinctively know that we're all 
potentially just one breath away from the vastness of eternity. God, scripture says that God has placed that sense of eternity in our hearts. And so the world fears death, and, 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 and yet there's no cure for death. They haven't figured that one out, and they won't. Everyone dies. Everyone is dying. I've read this quote before, but I just think it's so helpful and impactful. And this is old, so it could probably be updated, but the current death rate is awesome. Three people die every second, 180 every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour, 260,000 every day, and 95 million every year. Death comes to young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, educated and ignorant, king and commoner. No sex is spared, no age exempt, no color excused. The dynamic young businessman, the glamorous young actress, the great athlete, the brilliant scientist, the television personality, the powerful politician, they all have one thing in common, they will all die. None of them can resist the moment when death will lay its hand on on them and bring all their fame and achievements to nothing. Death is no respecter of time or place. It has neither season nor barriers. It can strike at any moment of day or night, on land, on sea, in the air. Death comes to the hospital bed and the busy road and the comfortable armchair, the sports field and the office. There's not a single spot on the face of the planet where there is not a place that death can strike. The whole world is a hospital and every person in it is a terminal patient. What we call living can just as accurately be called dying because as soon as we begin to live, we begin to die. Happy Easter to you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not being morose. But listen, you can deny the resurrection, and some of you may disbelieve it, but you cannot deny death. Death is certain. But if the resurrection is not true, if there is no life beyond the grave because of what Christ has done in rising, then the best advice that I could give you today is eat really healthy and exercise. You just get all the kale you can consume and whatever the, whatever the secret is. You stay, as, stay alive as long as you possibly can. Squeeze as much as you can out of this short time you have on earth. But you and I know that's not sufficient. I think you know deep down. The question then becomes, how, how, how are you going to face the prospect of death one day? Just risk it. Scripture talks about this. There were those that thought, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You, you know that's not good enough. Are you going to depend upon being a good moral person and just try to be really good and hope that, that earns you points with God in the end? That's not going to work. You're going to rely upon what a priest told you a long time ago when you were a child or some ritual that you went through in a church or some religious ceremony. Are you going to trust in your family ties or your intellect or your rational abilities or your resources? Remember Acts 17. We looked at there just a little minute ago. To all those intellectual, intelligent, self-sufficient well-to-do, influential movers and shakers up there on Mars Hill, Paul told them what this, that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. What he's saying, judgment's coming. Are you ready? And of this he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. So because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I can be certain that judgment is coming. Are you prepared for that day? Do you think you can plead your case before the judge of all the earth? Let me go ahead and tell you, you and I have no case. God is holy. He is perfect. He is without sin. You and I are sinners. We have broken God's law. We have sinned by not doing what God tells us to do. We've sinned by doing what God tells us not to do. And the Bible makes it very clear that if you've broken, if, you, if, you've, if you're guilty of one transgression, you're guilty of all. So we're sinful through and through. Not just the things that we do, but the things we think. The qualification for heaven, according to Scripture, Jesus says, be perfect like I'm perfect. Okay, so where is the hope for us then? That's the only way we're getting in is by being perfect, and we know how sinful we are. Where's the hope? Well, here's the hope. Is that Jesus came, and he did what we could never, ever, ever do. He lived a perfect life, perfectly obeying God's law, always doing what God told him to do, never doing what God told him not to do. He was tempted to sin like we are, but never, ever sinned. That's just staggering. If you have children, and Jesus was born as a baby and raised as a child, the fact that he throughout his life never lied, never got sinfully angry, never never sinned, never lusted. He lived for 30 plus years this way. Yet, even though he was perfect, he suffered and he died on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. Yes, there were humans involved in Jesus' crucifixion. He was crucified at the hands of wicked men, and there were people involved. But there was a lot more going on, and Scripture makes this very clear. Well, Jesus was on the cross. We talked about this Friday night. Darkness fell for three hours, and the Father's furious wrath against our sin was poured out upon His own Son, Jesus. Then Jesus said these words, It is finished. The price for sin had been paid. And then He died. He died as our substitute. He, he lived the life we couldn't live. He, he died and paid, paid the debt of sin we could never pay. He died for us. But He didn't stay dead. He did not. He was raised to life on the third day. And so there's this wonderful appeal. Remember I talked about the letter of Romans as an explanation of the gospel and it gets to this, so what do we do then? In light of this wonderful good news that what Christ has done in coming to live this perfect life, to die for my sins, to raise again from the dead, what do we do? And Paul makes this appeal. If you can, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved you will die yes physically but you can be saved to eternal life by faith and then he goes on for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved are you afraid of death are you prepared to meet that last great enemy you can have confidence in 
many in here have this confidence because we've trusted in Jesus Christ. And you can leave this room with confidence, even if you didn't enter it with confidence. You can be prepared to face death today. Are you weary? Are you tired? There's other ways in which Scripture invites us to come into believe in Jesus Christ. But, and so is your, is your, not just your body tired, maybe you didn't sleep last night, but is your, is your soul tired? Jesus promises rest to those who come to him. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Do you need that today? Has the turmoil been going on for so long and you need rest? Come to Jesus. If you're unsatisfied with life, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger spiritually, spiritual hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. You can come to him and find satisfaction. I'm going to pray in just a moment and and then we're going to sing. And then I, I just invite you, if you have questions or if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ and you don't know this confidence in the face of death and talking about, and if this still seems curious, or if you're skeptical and you've got questions or, or thoughts or things you want to share, please please talk with us. You can talk with me. We'll have a few folks up here, some men and women that are available uh, to talk with you. And uh, we'd love to share more with you about this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. And then we'll, we'll join our voices and sing to the Lord together. Father, we thank you for um, this glorious reality. And it is reality. The tomb is empty. And our Savior lives. And I pray, Father, that we would recognize how, how all of history has hinged upon this event. And yet it wouldn't be something that we look at simply academically. But God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, just bring these truths of the resurrection so close to our hearts that we are transformed by them. And so that we know this peace and joy and purpose and, and hope and, and confidence that, that is, is to be ours by, by what Christ has done. And so, God, even as we sing, drive these truths deeper deeper into our hearts, Father. Um, and you, you know, you know what we need today, and so we pray that again we would, you would speak to us again, even as we sing to you. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.